I'm going to do my little spiel. Right, Peach? Are you ready, Kitty? She's like, she has taken over my desk. There is no, there's no, this is not Mel's desk anymore. This is the desk of Princess Peach, who has committed the great Kitty squat of 2020. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, my cat Simone is like incredibly aggressive if you're not petting her. Like she'll, <laughs> like I'll have to put my hand in my pocket if like I'm near her and I don't want to pet her, but she'll still like through my pocket, like paw my hand. All right, Peach. No, that's my pen. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to We Regret the Era. Blah, 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 blah. All right, trying again. everyone and welcome back to We Regret the Error, a Protean Collective podcast. This is a show where we explore how leftists of all stripes choose to engage with and create media. I am your host, Mel G, and today we are joined by Brendan Joyce, a working class poet who is currently based out of Ohio. If you want to start just by introducing yourself, maybe you could tell us when you started organizing or when you fell into you know, your personal brand of leftism um, and when did you start writing? Absolutely. Um, I uh, started writing when I was like a child, uh, probably when I was like 11 or 12. But it's, it's kind of strange in Ohio in terms of organizing because electoral politics is a cottage industry here, and especially voter outreach. So it's very similar to the restaurant industry in the gentrified city as kind of like a easy automatic job to get that pays like fake well <laughs> right. um so i'd been doing that since i was a teenager um but my parents were housing organizers in the 80s and worked in nonprofits in the 90s so we've kind of always been i grew up at actions i worked as a labor organizer in new york for a couple of years and then electoral politics too but i kind of hated it and um other than that worked in restaurants and now in ohio i'm trying to um do a couple of different things but um i don't talk about them as much <laughs> fair enough so when did you start writing poetry i was 12 um i I've, I've made this joke a lot <laughs> on the internet, but like, it's really deeply about being in a house growing up with IBS where like <laughs> my family would like keep tons of books in the bathroom. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and some of those books were books of poetry. And so it was like a way to pass time. Yeah. I, I think about it a lot, but nice. yeah. So, so it was always, it's kind of always there. Yeah, I didn't start getting into writing poetry until I was in, I don't know, maybe my second sophomore year of college. <laughs> I was in college for like six years. Um, but I took a poetry workshop. And prior to that, I was always the type who was um, very much, if I can say it in 500 words, why would I say it in five, you know, yeah. um, when it came to, to writing and creative writing. And then I actually started getting into poetry. 
and like the mechanics of it and um, realized that it's a far superior art form <laughs> than most creative <laughs> writing, I think. Yeah, I have a huge appreciation for it. I don't necessarily have a giant talent, but do you have a particular process that you go through when you write your poetry? I don't know. I I think that something that's changed over the last 18 months for me is I have a daily writing practice now. Um, before that, I was like working 60 hours a week and going back into part-time work. I just have way more time. And right. so when I wrote Character Limit, I had just moved back to Ohio from New York. My family was sick, so um, I wanted to be closer to them. And I was like working part-time in a restaurant again. And I just decided to write daily. And that pretty much changed everything about how I was able to produce poetry. You know, the process-wise, I just sit at my kitchen table and write. <laughs> Fair um, enough. And I mean, the biggest, the biggest thing is reading. Right. I, I, I read more books of poetry last year than I have ever in my life. I had a question, then my cat tried to eat my headphones. Peach, seriously, get off the desk. Um, <laughs> now, okay, so you, you mentioned Character Limit. This is a, a book of poems that it, you started writing on Twitter in the 140 characters, right? It's a series of poems that you've written, and then you compiled into a book. came out last year, right? Yeah, it uh, came out in September. It's... The character limit is actually 280 characters now. Mm. Um, and I'm glad that I don't, I didn't have to do 140 characters. Yeah. How did that get started? Just randomly? Is this part of your daily process that you started writing poetry on Twitter? I don't know how it started. I think that the way it really started was I tweeted a joke, which is the first poem in character limit. And I tweeted another joke <laughs> in the same thread and um and 11 said just do one of these a day and you have a chapbook and i was like no <laughs> that can't be that can't be it and then as i kept doing it i had been thinking it's fun what you just said about um why would you say in five words what you could say in 500? I'm very much that. Right. Or before a character limit, I was very much that way. I can't stop. And the character limit forced me to. And it's that kind of constrictor or restriction in poetry is why people gravitate to form in the first place, right? Like the sonnet and, um, and form is kind of exploding right now. People are really gravitating to form more official poetry. Um, but I was kind of interested in ways in which there were forms of text that already exist that are part of our daily lives that you could use like a sonnet that are not a sonnet, that don't have the historical implications of a sonnet. And the character limit was kind of like an automatic way into that. Um, but it did, it really, I mean, like you can see it in the poems, like the first couple or just like jokes, and then all of a sudden they kind of turn the bones. So is this? So did you compile it in chronological order from the time that you posted it? Then, yeah, like, I mean, there was no editing was, at all in terms of like poem mm, placement. 
Oh, no, not in terms of ordering. Right. Uh, I, I think I may have, so the way I did it, I did it all on a thread. So there were, I think there were 50 when I stopped and I deleted the thread and then put the pre-order link up for two weeks later. And then in that two weeks, I wrote 17 poems that wow. in, into the manuscript and then put them up. But there was nothing that was like in the thread originally that didn't make it. Um, there were a couple that I like added words to that are outside of the character limit. Um, but it was just because I could, I was like, Oh, I've, I like, I can do this in a Google doc now. Ooh. <laughs> Get that <laughs> like fancy feels, shit going. <laughs> yeah. It feels really fancy after you've been like trying to fit, <laughs> um, right. all, all of these ideas in this tiny little box. But, right. Yeah. I have a copy of character limit. I bought that because I wanted it. What what are some of the themes that you've found that sort of are recurring within that particular chapbook? Maybe I know that you've written you wrote a lot about like work, and you wrote a lot about um, working shifts, if I can remember it correctly. But what other themes sort of like came up constantly as you were writing the poems? Well, I mean, I think there's like a few in the book that are constant. One is work. But more specifically, working in restaurants and knowing that it's part of the gentrification of the neighborhood you're from, which is like the context in which I work, right? Um, or I don't work in a restaurant in the neighborhood I'm from now, but I did for uh, years um, after high school. And I think that's a really specific experience and growing up in that neighborhood and how much it's changed. I mean, like it's literally a different neighborhood. Um, and yeah, so that experience kind of haunts my sense of place here. And I think part of the book is me reckoning with moving back to Cleveland um, after having been gone. But the other things in the book really 2016, working for the AFL-CIO on the campaign, um and being incredibly disillusioned by it i mean i worked that campaign primarily because it paid 15 dollars an hour and i had health care <laughs> right um, which is like not that is not what draws people to electoralism <laughs> mm -hmm. um but here there's that relationship to the labor and i was hired you know I, I, there were like 114 people working out of that office that were doing it for the exact same reason which is, it was the best job they could get. Right. Um, so yeah, I think those, if I had to name it quickly, I think those, that's really what I talk about in the book. But I mean, it's, sorry. It's also just like kind of a, 2016 felt like a failure, <laughs> but not in terms of, um, not in terms of being invested in that election, but, uh, well, no, in terms of being invested in that election in the first place, because, you know, coming out of Occupy and BLM and No Doppel, like <laughs> right. the, the notion to put all of, um, and we just did it again with Bernie, right? Like right. the notion to put all of your hopes into this electoral program that is not very expensive and doesn't have a whole lot of chance 
um, leaves us where we are right now, which is not really knowing what forms of organization um, can get us to where we want to be. Uh, so yeah, frustration, anger. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> certainly feels like um, just a series of mishandled opportunities. I would say the last decade in the United States among the American left, starting with Occupy and leading all the way up to Bernie Sanders endorsing Joe Biden this week, you know, and the consistent, um, I don't want to call it inability, but certainly we just miss the boat every time in terms of uh, galvanizing individuals into and collecting them into uh, a robust working class movement, you know, that um, isn't just electoralism or isn't just direct action or isn't just mutual aid programs as it tends to be, right? And like, yeah. is more of an all-encompassing sort of movement. Yeah, it's been a disappointing couple of months. <laughs> God. Yeah. I took a step back when I moved to Cleveland um, and started writing a lot more. Uh, I took a step back from organizing. But at the same time, I really felt, and I think a lot of people feel this way, deep disenchantment with what is organizationally available. And at the same time, like a inability to craft that um, or to have power over that. I think that looking at what's happening in the left, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's a pretty standard yeah. thing that's going on. But, I, you know, some of the first actions I ever went to were anti-war actions in, um, you know, 2003, 2002. And watching that movement totally fail in every respect. I mean, foreign policy is barely something that uh, gets talked about in the way that it was centrally relevant in the aughts, right? And right. that ter I mean, that deeply terrifies me because especially on the white left, there seems to be very little action around um, imperialism and a far bigger focus on trying to create a social democracy inside the empire. And that's, that is also terrifying because that those two things can coexist. It's not free college isn't abolishing borders, right? right? Why do you think that is that we just consistently focus inwardly? Is it just because we have some sort of blinders of the imperial core or uh, an inability to really spend more time focusing on the sort of foreign policy aspects of what would be a robust socialist platform? I mean, I think it's deeply about American culture, right? As much as like the left wants to separate itself from that, especially whiteness, right? Right. It's uh, a self-obsession. Really difficult to be in this moment and not think about the global war on terrorism, which is just totally unfettered mm -hmm. <laughs> still. Mm -hmm. uh, building the surveillance state that they're going to utilize to monitor who is and is not sick or who is and does, who does and does not have antibodies to return to work and our inability to stop those things in the first place now creates like a total nightmare state right. going forward in terms of surveillance. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't have answers. I'm a fucking poet. But... <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
Poets and writers usually make up the best of any revolution. So it's my own personal opinion. I hope. Um, cool. I mean, shit, cool. In the last six months or so, I've kind of uh, become aware of or introduced to the sort of po proletarian poets of Twitter and that sort of discourse that has been happening for I'm sh fucking decades that I just have never really spent time looking into. And I'm assuming that you you would call yourself a proletarian poet. And at its very base, I would assume that it's just working class people um, engaging in the creation of poetry um, and engaging in those communities that do the same. Um, what do you think stands out with... Um, working class poetry from your run of the mill CIA backed MFA program? What makes it different? <laughs> well, I'm not so sure about that. Cam Kasha wrote an essay in Marl Karks, um, kind of trying to theorize about what that means um, and try to create a path forward with it. Matilda has written a lot about it as well. I think that what characterizes a lot of the writing, for instance, that came out in Paint Bucket and now we're seeing in Protean um, and in Merle's Karks, uh, Best Buds Collective um, is regular working people writing about their lives. And I think that that doesn't necessarily always have an aesthetic character to it, right? I think we write wildly different um, writing among one another not like it's different because it's not usually in poetry people like to lump people into schools right like right. the new york school right these aesthetic houses i don't think we have an aesthetic house in the same way and i'm glad for that we have a diversity of aesthetics um and we're all but we're all just trying to talk about um these heightening contradictions as they arrive in our lives and interrogate them um and I'm I'm super happy not to get bogged down <laughs> into uh, like a house aesthetic in the way other people might. Although Matilda has written, um, Matilda Calling has written especially about the uh, move towards manifesto that poems make um, that might really typify like a break from what you, you're calling here CIA-backed MFAs, which is that there are calls for violence in them, in political violence, which is pretty unthinkable in a lot of mainstream American poetry. It wouldn't get published. Right. Um, but especially, for instance, the poem I published, or Protean published uh, from me in the most recent issue, I mean, I'm talking about cops in a way that people <laughs> do not often publish. Right. Um, I'm grateful for that. But the, I think that would probably be the biggest change. Although I don't know if I would orient much of my work around political violence as much as um, just trying to interrogate these contradictions and how they arrive in our lives. Uh, but really, poets don't talk about money. <laughs> That's what it really comes down to. Poets don't talk about money. They're not supposed to, especially not in their work. Right. It's all about the, uh, the beauty of the human condition and 
What happens when we die? What the fuck is beauty, right? <laughs> what the fuck is the human condition? What makes yeah. it literary, you know? The age-old question. God, I remember being in um, my creative writing program and having this wild, drawn-out, like, multi-semester argument with administrators in the program over my, ultimately, what caused me to leave this program and go back into English literature and literary analysis was they wouldn't allow me to write sci-fi and fantasy short stories for my BFA application. They wouldn't let me do it. Really? Yeah. The chair of the department, who is no longer the chair of the department, this was way back in like 2015. Um, God, that was like five years ago. What the fuck? Anyways, she um, did not believe that science fiction, fantasy, crime, thriller, um, any of those sort of dime store, penny dreadful type writing exercises were considered literary enough to be held to a standard because literary fiction and, and poetry is supposed to examine the human condition, whatever the fuck bullshit that is, you know. And it's just, I just remember being, you know, in multiple classes, listening to this diatribe about how, you know, my writing was an interrogating the human condition enough and ultimately being pushed out of the, essentially leaving the department because couldn't make any headway with the people who were going to confer my BFA to me. It just, you know, it's this very, I think when you talk about aesthetics, this is exactly what you're talking about, right? This very specific way of doing things that fits in a box that was prescribed by an institutional authority as to what is and is not okay to write, you know, and you end up, exactly. Yeah. you end up clipping the wings of your own emotions. <laughs> like those types of examinations are impossible within the institution, particularly when you think about uh, what sci-fi is as a genre, you know, it's this imagining of utopia. It's this often characterized by, violence and political upheaval and um, pushing boundaries and interrogating the concept of the frontier and what that means from a colonizer's perspective, like all of these fascinating themes and um, very important conversations in a political context that are left out of like whole generations of writers training in MFA and BFA programs because they're dangerous. You know. Yeah, I mean, uh, did you? Um, I'm looking up the name of the author right now. Have you read Workshop of Empire? I have not. Um, Workshop of Empire. I'm sorry to do research in the middle of this. Uh, so yeah, Workshop of Empire, Workshops of Empire, Segner, Engel, and American Creative Writing During the Cold War, um, which is by Eric Bennett. Uh, who went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, traces the creation of Iowa and uh, Stegner and um, their deep relationship to uh, the CIA and intelligence apparatuses um, at the height of the Cold War. Um, and it does exactly what you're talking about, right? Which is standardized is a set of aesthetics that 
lead one away from very political writing and even in political writing um, kind of defangs uh, what can be done inside of it. Uh, it. And he uses exactly the example you just used of, um, he'd be in the workshop writing speculative fiction and uh, genre fiction and people would be like, <laughs> you know, this isn't literature, right? Right. Um, and we see that uh, throughout the award system until very recently, uh, until like Jonathan Blassum, uh, some, some people would say, right? Uh, and other writers really started blending that, that it wasn't acknowledged. And even when it is now, it can still serve those same purposes. I think the very similar thing has happened in poetry. Um, and it's why a lot of the writing that comes out of those workshops suck. Even when you, you break or cross those boundaries into more revolutionary forms of writing, right? Or, or you, you meld the, the traditional aesthetics of literary fiction into genre fiction or something of that sort. Um, you still have those people who are like seeing it as the sort of outlier, outsider, other first and being, you know, congratulating it for assimilating in a lot of ways instead of viewing it as, as you know, uh, um, perhaps a new generation of writers who have actually taken up the mantle of rebellious or revolutionary poetry or writing and, and moved it into a new space um, that can be examined without this, the usual hangups of the institution sort of dragging at your heels, you know? Yeah. And the I larger mean, literary I mean, community is just unwilling to, mainstream literary community, I should say, is unwilling to sort of um, pay attention to that. Though I would argue that to a certain extent, the, the, the beatniks of the 60s, late 50s and, and 60s certainly had similar hangups and problems before they were ultimately assimilated into the larger literary canon by institutions. You know, there's a cultural right. legacy there. Right. And you can also, I mean, you can talk about the black arts movement. Uh, similarly, similarly, Mary Baraka is uh, definitely a huge influence on the work that we're doing um, in the scene that you've been describing. Um, and he was a huge influence on the poet Sean Bonney, who is definitely a huge influence on the scene you're describing. Um, but really what this boils down to in my mind is a reorientation of how capital works in um, the academy and in the humanities as a whole, right? Like um, that coupled with the need for the American government during the Cold War to create an anti-communist apparatus inside of literary production. Um, and they did it incredibly well and quietly. Um, although I know Jamie Baruch, for instance, has uh, sometimes said, you know, these institutions don't need to be CIA backed. The CIA works for half of their funders, right? So it's like, it's sometimes it's, I think we go out of our way to defend ourselves, even in drawing those links um, where we don't need to, because it's like <laughs> uh, the CIA works for the Cokes of the world, right? 
So if the right. cokes are riding catapult, <laughs> we don't really need to say the catapult is in bed with the CIA because they both work for the cokes. Right. Um, or, you know, any number of other institutions that you could point at. Uh, Rattle is a big one um, that Estelle Best talked about being essentially a giant landlord front, the Poetry Foundation being a giant uh, pharmaceutical money cleaning operation. Um, but when it comes to like reforming these institutions or looking at how you can attack these institutions, um, they're incredibly, like any large pot of money, they're incredibly uh, agile in deploying a diverse set of tactics to distract from the uh, terrible damage that they are hiding. Um, and it seems like lately one of those tactics is to uh, do what a lot of nonprofits do, which is, um, you know, hire a lot of people from marginalized communities to front these organizations uh, while actually having very little accountability towards those communities in uh, terms of actually giving them fucking capital. <laughs> um, and that's a really hard thing to organize against, which is something that me, Roy, and uh, Matilda have talked about a lot because. Uh, Roy Moon, who's the host of Marxist Poetry Podcast and a poet in his own right, a fantastic poet. Um, but the problem is, like, how do you stop, for instance, the Poetry Magazine? It gets 150,000 submissions a year. How do you run a picket line on that? 150,000. What do you do? You circulate a boycott letter? What? What? It, it can't operate that way. It can't operate in a normal workplace dynamic because we're the most we're the worst paid freelancers in the world. <laughs> you know, I, I just got solicited for a pretty big publication that I'm really proud of and excited for. And I got paid $75 for four poems. Um, it's, and that's the way it works, right? Uh, what does that come out to? Like 10 bucks an hour for the amount of time that you spent writing that poetry? Writing and editing before you sent that off? I mean, thank God that I care far less about my poems than most people because I think maybe the hourly is a little bit uh, high <laughs> uh, compared to the other forms of labor that I sell. But um, if I was like a lot of the people who I respect and admire greatly, I would have spent a lot more time on those poems <laughs> and probably would have made a dollar an hour. Um, but yeah, it's something that we have to think about constantly, this labor dynamic. I'm luckily outside of the academy. And it's funny that I say luckily because usually I say too bad that I'm outside of the academy because I don't have access to a lot of opportunities. But at the same time, everybody I know inside of the academy is working as an adjunct and making nothing. Um, yeah, I'm a TA. Just I make nothing. Exactly. I know. And I'm told to uh, appreciate it because... You could be an adjunct. We can only give them two sessions a semester because if we give them three, then they get health insurance. So be grateful that you have health insurance. Right. And it's like, do you know how we got health insurance? Trying to organize a union back in the 90s. Like, yeah, the academy's is fucking shit. And I love it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's great. I don't know what I'm going to do when they kick me out eventually, but no, I, I, I think it's interesting that you, you, you sort of bring this concept of 
how do you organize a 150,000 person submission pool? You know, what does that even look like? I wonder if the sort of pioneering models of the freelance journalist union with the IWW would be one way to begin to organize poets and writers in general, creative writers, people within the creative field into a specific guild that is digital, right? That does not have a state or a city that it's local out of besides maybe the best state in the country to have that has labor laws like New York or something, you know? Yeah. I mean, the National Writers Union Freelance Solidarity Project is doing pretty much that. Um, and I've been trying to get a little bit more involved with them. I'm a member now. Uh, Very cool. But it seems it's like one of the most amorphous problems <laughs> you could have uh, a totally underfunded industry. I mean, it's it's very similar to like trying to get Unite here to organize a restaurant, right? Right. Which is like what they care about is okay, how many dues-paying members are we going to get out of this? Right. Um, I'm not saying this about the National Writers Union. I'm just saying this about the organizing problem and the capacity in and of itself, right, in the country. The fear of backlash and, you know, I am easily replaced. (laughs) Right, but also from the union's perspective, and I know this from the organizing I've done, you look at a shop and you figure out the financials on the business and you do your best opera research you can before you ever, you know, really get in with the workers because you want to make sure that if you go, come down to the negotiating table, you crack the books open that you can actually organize benefits for people mm-hmm. or negotiate benefits for people, right? And if you can't do that, then this is what's happened through freestanding independent restaurants throughout the country right that's why there is no real restaurant union in this country then they just walk the unions don't take it it's a huge it's a huge financial risk for them and they're cowards i mean they're not they're not actually cowards they're self-interested right as institutions right but they're they're not gonna you know risk a two million dollar organizing drive on a restaurant with 50 workers in it. it doesn't make any sense right especially if the margins are 2% a year. It's very similar in the uh, publishing industry because when it comes down to it, the amount of small presses, and as you know from working uh, at Protean, right. um, y'all don't have a lot of money. <laughs> so what are you gonna, what can be negotiated? What's possible? Um, and what it comes down to is rich people have the fucking money that we need to be able to create the art that we need to create. So we could either steal it from them or we could beg through a ridiculous application process that's highly exclusionary for it. And I say, fuck it, let's take it. (laughs) I would rather steal it. Yeah. I mean, that is a a boot I would never lick, honestly. I just, mm -mm. I mean, and I think I'm definitely proud of the fact that Protean has not done that you know hooked up with some sort of capital firm or um started selling ads to whoever wants to buy them on our website right we're all scraping by and still publishing people and you know i think that as slow as the growth has been that's it's really nice to be able to say that this is like 
listener supported. This is reader supported work. Like the money that you send to us goes directly into the pockets of the people who are writing for us. And that is, I don't know, it's a nice, it's a nice little badge to have. And it, you know, it's, it's a sort of model that is doable on a larger scale as long as we have the ability to to continue to grow and offer something that people are interested in reading, you know. And yeah, we'll I mean. Figure out how to break I, into the mansions of the rich later on. Dirty, <laughs> satire, yeah. that is total jokes, jokes. Satire and not actionable. Um, <laughs> I, I, I keep thinking about this poetry scene in and of itself as kind of indicative of there is a readership for this kind of writing that isn't being spoken to. And I think there's a, you know, there's an audience for this sort of media that isn't being spoken to. And luckily we're seeing like a variety of different ways in which that audience is being met. <laughs> um, and the poetry scene is really, I think, just an extension of that. I don't think uh, that what we're doing differs greatly from what the rest of the left is doing and trying to be able to create its own modern culture, right? Right. Um, you know, I think ever since Occupy, there's been a pretty huge movement constantly to try to create that and institutionalize it to some degree so it's something that can maintain um and i hope it grows and i love to see you know protean exist i was very excited to see it and uh Marl's parks as well and um these other journals that are popping up seemingly every day uh but at the same time i am a little worried that like how do we, I'm a bus boy, you know, I'm a bus boy, I'm laid off. And I am on day 32 of waiting for unemployment benefits. I self-published these books and the last one luckily sold, you know, enough <laughs> and sold a lot, especially in the last couple of weeks. But the people whose aesthetics that we hate, who are putting out work that sucks, all have fucking foundation grants and awards and ways in which that they can sustain themselves. And I have, when I'm lucky, two jobs. <laughs> and when I'm not lucky, uh, the system to wait on. So I'm worried about how the working class um, literature that's happening, if it's really sustainable. Um, or if we're all just going to be broken, tired, <laughs> uh, like a lot of our forebearers are, and not really be able to produce at the pace um, that we are right now. But well, I wonder. Doom, doom and gloom. <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm usually pretty doomer about it as well, but I think that we have a unique opportunity to uh, produce and disseminate art and writing and these materials of culture digitally for for nothing you know yeah for yeah. free and yeah. we have the best distribution system in human history that 
piece of the puzzle is likely going to be the thing that is going to maintain working class art and writing through the next 10 years of this depression. Right. And that if anything, we're going to be de- devising new ways of disseminating this, um, particularly in the age of security culture and surveillance. Um, and create more creative ways to get this, these materials to people who need to read them. And uh, I'm curious to see how that's going to uh, move forward. You know, I think the wave of podcasts over the last five to six years is definitely also part of that, that tradition, right? You know, we've moved on from everyone in 19th century communist <laughs> circles in America had a printing press and a magazine, you know, now it's more who is putting out uh, digital zines, who is putting out podcasts that can be listened to for free, who is, you know, creating these materials who are working class uh, creators and, and how are we able to continue to a disseminate this and be set up, like you say, some sort of institutionalization of that particular piece of culture that also comes with it, um, patronage, right? And yeah. the ability for artists, writers, you know, people like me who kind of fit in every little bit of the mold um, to sustain ourselves in this new space um, so that we can continue doing this work. And I think a lot of people sort of hedge their bets on electoralism and the creation of more democratic socialist policies in this country to sort of be their springboard into that, you know, more artist grants, more ideas of like, well, if we can reduce our work week and raise our wages, then we have the time for it. You know, clearly we were duped. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I I mean, it was a doomed, it was doomed to begin with. If you really think about it. Yeah. Listen, I'm not a never voter. Um, but I'm, and I'm going to vote. Uh, I'm still going to vote, but I absolutely don't believe in it. I used to raise money for politicians for a living. I don't believe, I know these fucking people. Right. <laughs> they're, they're all sociopaths. I yeah. mean, they're, the, the big myth about Trump is that he's different. <laughs> he's right. not. It's every single one of them. It doesn't matter if they're telling you that they're socialists or if they're, you know, uh, they are all like that and they can't be trusted the only the only time that they ever do anything for us is when we put so much pressure on them that they have no other choice right um and i am disturbed by the way some dsa and dsa national worked um for the Bernie campaign at a point that produced this moment. Mm. Um, And I'm excited to see what DSA does now when like, we just can't like, we're going to lose the election. Who cares? Like keep moving. We got to figure out something else. Um, This is the biggest organizing capacity, especially in the labor movement we've had ever. (laughs) Um, It's like the fact that there's no unemployed people's union in this country creates the condition that we're in right now where we have 16 million people on unemployment and 
maybe like only a fourth of them actually receiving benefits so far. Right. Um, that's because there wasn't, you know, AFSCME organizes so that they have the jobs that they need. Uh, but if there's an unemployed people's union, they could organize for better benefits and uh, staffing levels that can handle a giant influx of people. Um, I keep talking about this income minimum requirement for unemployment in the state of Ohio, you don't qualify for unemployment if you make under $269 a week, um, which means that the poorer you are, the less likely you are to receive benefits. It also means that if you receive the tip minimum wage and your boss doesn't report your tips, you're disqualified from receiving unemployment, even if you're a full-time worker. Um, and in order to fight to get those benefits, you have to file an affidavit saying that you received a certain amount of tips and then hope that your hopes hope that your boss doesn't in self-interest um, you know fight that affidavit, right? Right. So so this creates like this insane situation where most of the restaurant industries in the country are shut. A huge percentage of people in those industries are being wage thieves at their jobs. And now they're fucked out of work <laughs> and they have to apply for unemployment and the system is built to fail them, right? Right. I, I hope, I'm deeply hopeful for this moment that produces a lot of rage that can be channeled against this system. But I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I suppose we'll see. We have to get through the worst of this pandemic first. Get a little bit of a breather. Sorry, I'm I'm sorry to rant. <laughs> oh no, that's exactly what we want. <laughs> you bring up good points. I'm trying to figure out how to bring it back around to poetry. Um, no, I think actually this might this is slightly depressing, but um, during your time Love off, it. let's go. <laughs> during your time off, as you fight and slog your way through the unemployment line, you have been writing. I have. Yes. You're working on a new yeah. project. Tell me about it. So I released Character Limit in September 2019. And since then, and even before then, I'd been writing a chapbook that is more normal in form and et cetera. Um, even The Moon, the poem that just appeared in Protean Magazine, uh, is in that chapbook. Um, and so I had like 40 poems. I was going to release on Marl's Parks. It was going to be called Fascism Needs an Apocalypse. I named it that in September. So it's not like <laughs> about mm. this, though I guess it, yeah. But um, so I've been sitting on this chat book. Marl's Parks kind of went through some stuff. Uh, wasn't able to release chat books um, at the time. And I was also just kind of not done with the manuscript. Um, and then all of this happened and I just kind of wanted to document what was happening and how it felt. And, um, at the same time I had really needed money. And so I tweeted about my book and a lot of people shared it and it sold a lot of copies. And then I realized that the amount of copies that it sold and the amount of money I made from it might disqualify me from unemployment insurance. 
Wow. <laughs> Which makes it sound like a lot more money than it was. Cause it doesn't really need to be that much money. Um, no, but first you're not making money. enough and then you make just a little too much. Yep. In like one week. Right. Wow. And so then I was like, Oh fuck. I should release this book. Um, so it's called unemployment insurance. It has the entirety of the chat book that I was going to release anyways in it. Um, but it also kind of has, it's kind of three books. Um, it's almost a daily diary of, uh, what life is like now, um, in this month long quarantine and unemployment. Um, and then the rest of the poems I've written, um, during the last six months. But I hope it's really hard because it's like, I'm documenting this time as it happens. And I did this a little bit in character limit. Like there's a reference to the Koch brother dying in character limit. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I read it now. I'm like, <laughs> you know, um, cause it kind of dates what's happening, but, um, like I had something in the manuscript about Boris Johnson being in the hospital. <laughs> nice. Keep it in. Uh, yeah. I, well, yeah. The first line is I'm glad. I'm, I am glad to say the prime minister is in the ICU. <laughs> That's good. Um, but I don't know if I can keep it because he survived. I was really, I was like, oh, if he dies, this is going to be great. Uh, which is what I say about all politicians. But, <laughs> the, um, the, with it having changed, with everything changing every day, it's really hard to capture. Well, perhaps your poems are that moment of capture for that specific time. I hope. It would, it's, a, it's a window into a certain five-minute period of a certain day halfway through your quarantine. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's all it can be, right? Yeah. There's a deep fetish of poems inside of poetry in a way that the workshop kind of produces because it's like this collective thing, but then also the publishing industry produces through the prize and contest system where you can't just write a fucking poem. You know what I mean? Right. It has it has to be like a master's thesis. All of them do. Right. And I think that that level of fetishization of the thing that you're producing, one, half kills it. But then on the other hand, it's just like, yo, <laughs> why are you taking this so um, seriously in that regard? No, no, where, I'm sorry. Uh, it has to be timeless, beautiful, full of language that no one in their right mind would ever use, ever. And it has to make you cry every time you read it. I'm sorry. Those are just. I like that. I like that third one. I, I love poetry that has words that no one in their right mind would ever use. Uh, that is actually some of my favorite poetry. But I don't write. I don't. I just don't write poetry. Like I, that. Find, I find I find poetry like that to be extremely difficult to write. I have a, a great admiration for people and respect for people who can who can write poetry like that even more frequently than I can. I just I have, well, I have such trouble with it. Yeah, I think about like Nikki Walshager's Houses the first time I read that book. Um, and she's probably one of my favorite living poets. And I was just, I was, you know, still taken aback by it, even thinking about it. Um, because it's, it's incredible. And that language is so rich. Right. Um, and 
I had never really encountered anything like it. Uh, but at the same time, I don't write like that, you know? Right. <laughs> or Matilda, right? Matilda is um, what she does with languages astonishing right um but i just don't those are the poets that you read and you go are you sure we're speaking the same language <laughs> like are we using the same language right now like i i yeah command I sh- like that right i showed uh one of mickey's poems i think in the boston review to uh my friend jeremy who's a poet here in cleveland and he was like See, I'm really sure I'm a poet until I read a poem like that. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, they meant it in the highest grade. Right. Uh, Instant. Your poem gives yeah. me imposter syndrome. <laughs> like, um, but yeah, that's a great compliment. I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I, I feel the same way. A lot of my close friends in the writing program that I was with became so good (laughs) intimidatingly so just very 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 good and went off to their own mfa programs or whatever and um, still write just incredible work and i'm you know i fell in with the, the academic crowd who gets to sit there and say see this this is good stuff you know i'll make the standards from the other side of it so that more people can read it that's great though so when is this um when is this new chapbook going to be released then uh mayday mayday hey i like it yeah good Um, are you going to be releasing it online again yeah so character limit was just a epub i threw together um unemployment insurance is going to be the same thing hopefully one day i get a book deal and they're like, hey, we would love to do a print edition with your old books. But for now, I'm just going to do digital. It also just feels like I keep thinking about this. How how would it feel right now to release a physical edition of a book? Like to me, it would feel terrible because it would have to go through Amazon fulfillment centers and the mail system and touch all that work, right? Right. And all those workers that I wish weren't at work. Um I would hate that shit. <laughs> right. Uh, it feels so irresponsible in a way. It it does. It feels gross. Like it feels gross to order stuff. It feels it feels gross. But um it, I loved that you released character limit online and getting that EPUB was nice. It if I don't know. I just usually I'm not one to go for digital editions and buying that and then buying more digital editions of other chapbooks and uh, pieces of fiction in the intervening six months has been a different experience. So hell yeah, I'm excited to read it. I think that's going to be great. Thank you. I, I love to hear that because I got so much, there are people in my life who are poets who I've known for years who haven't bought it because they're like, I mean, the book is a fetish commodity. It's, it's, a, it's a symbol of, I mean, it's a class symbol. And it wasn't something, it wasn't something that I wanted to produce in that way, especially considering what the project was. Um, it didn't make sense to. It's also, it's really fucking expensive to self-publish like a, a physical book 
Right. Um, and this way I could make, I make $9 off of the book, which I don't know if there are people who are on really good presses I know who do not make $9 a book, right? Um, right. But straight up. And I mean, that, that was something that blew my mind once I started to know writing because I was like, you know, all self-conscious about the book I wrote and that I self-published it and that it was tweets. <laughs> and I would talk to people about what they were making off of their royalty deals. And these are people that I expected to be fairly comfortable off of them. And they were like, they made as much money as I did. <laughs> right. Um, which is insane to me, considering how much more they sell. Um, but that's an aspect of it. If, if we get rid of the book in the way that we think about it, access just explodes. I, this was like a huge conversation with the Authors Guild. But did you see this where um, the digital... Uh, the Internet Archive released the Emergency Digital Library. Uh, yes. And, and did you see the it debate was, around that? Yeah, the, it was, um, ouch. Um, a couple of established authors had their work released without, like, circumventing their trademark or their copyright. And they were pissed about it because people were essentially pirating their work and caused a huge storm about just the concept of, of digital uh, piracy, really. I mean, because that's what it is when you're circumventing copyrights. Um, but, you know, you're talking about like well-off, well-established authors who are like making this giant fucking mess of what is supposed to be um, like a well-intentioned thing, right? Yeah. Providing access and, to people. These are all so-called anti-capitalist authors, too, which was super... Uh, Wendy Trevino it commented on it a lot. Um, and I always looked at her as kind of a... Uh, someone who's producing critique that I can trust. Um, and it was just like, so we figured out which authors which authors are capitalists yesterday, right? right? That's really what happened. Um, but I think about it like I've never, I, maybe one time I got someone who DM'd me about my book. And it's like, hey, I can't afford it. And I didn't send it to them. And that was out of probably a hundred times, <laughs> right. you know? I would never not give my book away for free. And so that day I put up, um, if you're listening to this and you're still listening, I don't know why, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, that day I put up on my Gumroad, you can download it. You can download Character Limit for free now um, or pay what you want. Uh, just because it just seems fucking ridiculous. Like who is who has a real publishing contract where they are making enough off royalties where it will fuck up their bottom line to have two week a two-week lending library operate in a digital way, right? Um, where people are really impacted by that. I, I just can't imagine that that's true. Um, I think what's more true is that writers are poor because presses won't publish them and magazines won't publish them and the academy won't hire them. Um, and those are great places to orient organizing, but like getting pissed at 
young people for reading your shit online for free. I did that. I tore on all the time uh, when I was younger because I didn't have any fucking money. And right. I was debt locked out of the library system. So, you know, it, it was like very, do you remember Piracy Funds Terrorism? Yes. The MPAA ads that they would run before movies. Yeah. And they just, they always sounded insane, right? You wouldn't download a car. They, right. You wouldn't download a car. Exactly. It's, <laughs> it's, first of all, I would totally fucking download a car. <laughs> right. It's pretty <laughs> printing. I don't know. We're getting yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would totally download a car. But uh, more than that, like, I, again, the level of, where you have to be at to really be making an impactful amount of money off of um, your writing is unfathomable to me. However, at the same time, I just wrote a book and called it Unemployment Insurance, and I'm expecting <laughs> to make at least like a week of wages off of it. So, Oh, I'm sure you will. I hope. Yeah. Um, this episode's coming out next week, so ooh, you'll, nice. you'll have it. It'll be great. It'll be a little preview to uh, the following week, which will be your release date. So we'll push a pre-order link for you so that you can have a little bump from our modest listenership, working on it, building it up. I'm so excited for this podcast. I am so excited that y'all are doing it. It's nice to be able to like, bring people like you on to have these conversations about art and politics and what that looks like and to allow you to talk about things that you love to do. You yeah. know, I, I mean, great. what we were talking about, absolutely. I'm, that's why I'm so excited for it. What we were talking about with um, the workshops, like I didn't know any of that shit until I got into like super niche communist Twitter. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that should not be the only way <laughs> right you know the poetry foundation has 200 million dollars stolen from this from sick and dying people right um or that they spend more money producing their magazine every year than they do on community grants um that information is organizing information that's what we call ammunition right right and but people don't have that so they can't readership does this is the other big thing i've realized if your readership knows about this fucked up shit that's going on, they're going to make different consumer decisions about where they look to, where they read, where they, you know, when the Poetry Foundation publishes a fascist, an explicitly fascist um, poem full of fascist symbols, and people realize that and hear about that, they're not going to keep going to the Poetry Foundation website uh, to look up that William Carlos Williams poem or whatever. Right. Um, they respond to that differently and that affects poetry foundation. But if no one's talking about it or there's no place to talk about it, that's why I'm so excited about this. There's no place to talk about this shit, especially in media, then no one knows how to make better decisions about where they're consuming from. Right. And that's been a lot of conversations that I've had with various other individuals in various like branches of what you could call leftist media is uh, the importance of creating that space for these conversations to actually take place. And it's not just, you know, dirtbag left types, but more like earnest media organizations that are held accountable uh, by their readers that are transparent in their dealings that are, you know, looking past 
your basic corporate paradigm and being truly independent um, in all the ways that it's possible to do so, right? And creating spaces like Protean, which is technically worker owned. And, you know, we decide as a group and a collective what we do with the funds that we get. And it's almost always goes into the, the pockets of the writers, you know, or towards making a magazine, a print issue, like the one we just put out that you're in, that I finally got my copy of. Oh, it's so pretty. It's so beautiful. It's so good. <laughs> it's like it's the most beautiful magazine I've ever seen in my life. I was so I was, proud. <laughs> yeah, damn. The other, the I had a minimal effort. I did a lot of editing for it, but Tyler and Slug spent a lot of time on it, and it turned out extremely well. And I'm very proud of it. It's very cool. Jesus fucking Christ. Slug is a genius for that shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, so good. Right? Also, that, that Tongo essay, oh my God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That Tongo essay is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, I was so slam dunk that. people. I know. That was, I, that's, I'm, I'm, that's going to be my proudest pub for a long time. Well, uh, you should submit to the next issue because we're going to be putting okay. out a call soon. Yeah. It's going to be great. Yeah. I'm so excited. So that's about it. I don't have many other questions for you. One thing I would like to ask is uh, where can we find your work? Where can listeners maybe contact you or maybe if you want me to post a link to character limit or um, your upcoming release, what's, you know, where drop the, the URLs, if you will, whatever okay. on and all that. Um, the two places you can find me, you can find me, you can find my work on gumroad.com slash nice try officer. Uh, that's where you can buy or if you'd like download character limit. Um, and also I have a pre-order link up there right now for unemployment insurance. Um, and uh, I also produce work uh, weekly on my Patreon at patreon.com slash nice try officer um, where 23 people have uh, subscribed to give me money monthly <laughs> to read poetry. I didn't know that was possible, but it's happening. It's great. Um, and then uh, my Twitter is uh, twitter.com slash nice try officer. Uh, so you can find me there as well. Awesome. Cool. Okay. Any um, any final parting words as we wind no. down this conversation? Thank you. That's all. Thank you. I'm so excited that this project's happening. Yeah. Um, and uh, I look forward to listening in the future. Well, thank you. This has been a fantastic conversation, and I am positive that my listeners are going to get some interesting good insight into the world of poetry and just writing in general. And hopefully they can take, take that back and have some interesting conversations with the people they listen to this episode with. So. Absolutely. Right on. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks. Mel. Yeah, of course. Thank you.